So I'm Miles Allen, I'm a professor of geosystem science at the School of Geography and the Environment and the Department of Physics in the University of Oxford. I run the climate research cluster at the Environmental Change Institute, and I've been working for many years on the problem of attributing causes of observed changes in our weather and climate, whether those causes are either natural external drivers, internal variability, or of course, what people are really interested in, human influence. So you published a paper uh, recently that looked at the last big floods that the UK had, I think, if I'm right, uh, where you argued that, that, that those floods could be in part uh, attributed to, to climate change. Actually, we were looking at the floods that occurred in the year 2000. Okay. Uh, we also had floods, in, uh, serious floods in 2007, and then of course, and we had some less serious floods in 2003. So we, we've had a number of flood events in the UK. Um, over the past uh, 10 or 15 years. But the 2001 was really the, the first major event that really got people talking about the possible role of climate change in these events. Um, and of course, it's always a difficult question to answer because floods have always happened. The UK has always had high rainfall, high rainfall var variability. And so in some seasons, we get more rain than others. And as a result, we occasionally get floods. So the question is whether, you know, what we're seeing now is just the normal run of bad luck in British weather or whether climate change might be having some uh, playing a role in it. And that was the sort of question we set out to answer in the study we published a couple of years ago. And uh, and and as I remember that 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 paper argued that, that there was an um, there was a link. You could establish a link between the two. Yeah, I mean, it was demonstrating how you had to set about uh, establishing such a link and showing how it worked for that particular event. The key point is you can't say, uh, as a lawyer might put it, but for climate change, this event would not have happened. Because these are all events that might have happened anyway in a hypothetical climate in which we hadn't raised greenhouse gas levels. But what we can say is to what extent has climate change or human influence on climate made this event more likely to occur or more probable. And that was what we looked at in that study. And we came to the conclusion that on average, we estimated that human influence on climate, past human influence on climate through rising greenhouse gas levels, had more or less doubled the risk of an event such as occurred in the autumn of 2000. But there was a big range of uncertainty on that. It might have been more than double. It might have been a good deal less than double. But we were fairly confident that the risk had at least gone up. Um, and that was the conclusion we drew. As you can see, it's a fairly um, complicated message. A lot of people like us to say, uh, you know, answer, answer the question, was climate change to blame or not? And the, the bottom line is, it, it doesn't make sense for a random event like a, a, you know, a flood um, to say climate change was entirely to blame or entirely not to blame. Uh, we have to look at how the probabilities may have been changed uh, by by them through our changing climate. So, if if the the the, the floods of two thousand, if climate change doubled the probability of those events happening, and when and we're now another fourteen years uh, into uh, the warming process, would one therefore be able to infer uh, that the floods we've just had were were, were made even more probable by climate change? Um, you need to be careful because, uh, I mean, some of the circumstances are similar. They, in both cases, uh, these were floods caused by a lot of rain. It may sound rather 
odd to say, well, of course they were caused by a lot of rain, but, but some kinds of floods are caused by different sorts of events. For example, the most severe floods we had in the 20th century happened in 1947, and those floods were caused by rain on accumulated snow in late springtime. And that sequence of events, we've also looked at a, a flood, as it were, a flood that didn't happen in the spring of 2001. Alison Kay and co-workers at uh, Wallingford looked at this. And she came to the conclusion that an event analogous to what happened in 1947 has actually become less likely because of human influence and climate, because that sort of sequence of events, accumulating snow, rain on uh, melting snow, uh, has now become less likely. So just because one kind of flood has been made more likely by human influence and climate doesn't mean that all kinds of flood have been made more likely. On the other that said, um, the circumstances we've seen this winter, as I say, are not dissimilar to what we saw in the autumn of 2000. So perhaps human influence has played a role, but we are actually running experiments at the moment to find out. And I, I don't know what the outcome of those experiments will be. Um, it's reasonable to suspect that human influence might have played a role, but until we got the numbers in, we shouldn't really say either way. And uh, do, you, do you still think that staying below two degrees is possible and or feasible? Right, okay, so that's an entirely um, a different uh, uh, topic. I think if you're talking about two degrees, uh, the, the overall internationally agreed goal of two degrees above pre-industrial temperatures, yeah. to remind people that that means really not much more than one degree above today's climate, First of all, I think it would be, be a very good idea, it would be very desirable for us to do that, primarily because as a climate modeler, I don't really know what a climate three or four or five degrees warmer than pre-industrial would be like. And I know that's the sort of um, thing you might not expect from a climate modeler, but, but as, you, as you will appreciate, the further we go from the kind of conditions which we can test our models on, the more concerned we are about trusting what they tell us. So I would be very worried about relying on anybody's projection of what a world four degrees warmer than pre-industrial would be like in detail. And for that very reason alone, I think limiting warming to around two degrees would be a very good idea. So, so that's it. I, you know, I, I, would, I, would, I fully support the goal. You asked whether you think we'll manage it. Mm. Um, I think we could manage it. There's no question we still could do it. Uh, there's a lot, it was interesting that in the sort of press coverage around the 2007 uh, IPCC scientific assessment of climate change, uh, the press seemed to be full of stories of it's too late, it's all over. And this time around, uh, five years later, although the science hasn't really changed very much, there's an awful lot of, oh, they've uh, revised down the forecast a bit, it's fine, we don't need to worry about it. I mean, everybody wants it to be one or the other, either too late or no problem at all. Mm. Uh, the reality is it's not too late, uh, but that's not to say we don't have a problem or a very substantial challenge in meeting that two-degree goal. Um, just to put it into sort of simple terms for people, um, global temperatures are largely determined in the long term by the total amount of fossil carbon we dump into the atmosphere. So back at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we had a around three to four trillion 
tons, that's three to four thousand billion tons of fossil carbon sitting underground waiting to be dug up and burned to power the industrial revolution. Over the past 250 years, we've dug up and burned about half a trillion tons. And that took us 250 years. Um, over the next 35 years, at the current rate, the way things are going, uh, we'll burn the next half trillion tons. And the next half trillion tons after that will take us over two degrees. So that puts the challenge into perspective. Um, we have to somehow work out what we're going to do with all that fossil carbon underground that would be immensely profitable to dig up and burn um, if we're not going to dump it all in the atmosphere and cause warming very substantially greater than two degrees. So that's the, the challenge we face and, and that you have to sort of bear that in mind in talking about whether we're going to meet the two degree goal. I think we could do it but I'm not convinced that the current policy, you know, the, the majority in fact of current policies are actually particularly helping towards that goal. And um, in recent weeks, we've seen uh, policy lobbyists such as uh, Lord Lawson and climate scientists given equal footing in uh, in media pieces about about climate change. Why is this? What's your sense of what's going on behind the scenes and its and and our media's relationship to science? I think there's a lot of muddle between climate science and climate policy in the media. It's assumed that if somebody um, disagrees with current government climate policies, they must also disagree with climate science. And that's not the case. I mean, I actually, I've been on record saying I think an awful lot of our current climate policies are actually misguided. I think they're promoting the wrong solutions and they're taking too short-term approach to addressing the problem. Um, it may, uh, you know, some people find this surprising as a climate scientist that I, I, I mean, Britain has a very progressive climate policy. I think it's very much to be commended for, you know, giving this issue the priority it deserves. But I still disagree with the thrust of a lot of government climate policy. Um, that's, you know, that said, I, I'm, I'm a mainstream climate scientist. I, 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 I accept the consensus view of the scientific community on what's actually happening. Um, what the media like to hear, of course, is a debate, um, and I think there's plenty of room for debate about whether our climate policies are a good idea. What they're less good at is finding people who can talk about climate policies without wandering off into arguing about the science. And that, that's rather frustrating, because the whole debate over whether or not we have the right policy mix to address the problem of climate change is really nothing to do with whether or not climate change is happening or how big it is. Um, the, the arguments I would have uh, with the government about the government's current approach to climate policy would apply regardless of where we are in the current uncertainty range on how big the climate response is. Um, and uh, around in 2009 when there was the whole um, climate gate nonsense uh, and since since that time, how, how have attacks by sceptics changed how scientists communicate? Do you think people have become more cautious and less willing to sort of uh, to, to, to go out in public and discuss these things? Well, I think it's the most interesting development in the whole climate change debate over recent years 
is just how much actually the IPCC's critics have moved their position. I mean, it'd be asking too much of human nature to expect them to say so. But, you know, whereas a few years ago, these guys were saying climate change wasn't happening at all, or that the medieval warm period proved that the warming we've seen to date uh, is entirely natural, um, now their position is much more, well, climate change is happening, human influence on climate does play a role in it, but it either doesn't matter or that it'll be too small to do any harm. That's an important shift. As I say, it'd be, it'd be too much to ask for them to actually come out and say, okay, the IPCC was right all along, but it is, it, you know, it's very important that, that that's where we're at, is that we're now arguing over factors of, you know, 30, 40% perhaps in the size of the response, rather than, you know, the black and white argument, it's happening, it's not happening. Um, so that, that's a big shift. Mm. And to be honest with you, the kind of policy measures that we need to take to address the problem of climate change uh, would be the same if you adopt the skeptics' estimates of what the, how, how big the response is, or you, adopt, you or you were to adopt the IPCCs. Um, within the within the, the the community of climate scientists, there's there's debates about the degree to which. Um, climate scientists should remain uh, just purely focused on the science or whether they should actually engage in uh, in uh, um, activism or, or work to, uh, around trying to stop it. So James Hansen, for example, has been arrested for trying to stop coal trucks in the US. Kevin Anderson has been quoted as saying that uh, he feels that civil disobedience is one of the only routes to uh, actually dealing with climate change. What's your kind of take on that balance as a climate scientist between stepping across into doing something about it or just sort of documenting the process and gathering the science? Uh, well, I'm pretty conservative on this one. I think it, it is our job to do to do the science as you describe, and I don't think uh, I don't think where we get our funding from or what our political views are really makes much difference to the science we do and, and we should always take very careful steps to make sure that it doesn't make much difference uh, to the science we do. Um, that said, of course, everybody as an individual is entitled to an opinion. Um, I've certainly expressed my views on climate policy. I've been quite open about that. Um, but I've also made it clear that I'm speaking as, a, as an individual who perhaps works a lot on climate and thinks a lot about climate, but I don't see that my views about climate policy have any special privileged position, uh, they're just my views. Uh, but uh, when I'm doing climate science, I'm, I'm working in a community which is working together to understand the system as best we can, uh, and that's very different. I don't think my political views really come into it at that point. And just to go back to Kevin Anderson for a minute, He's he was uh, he published recently about arguing that, that his sense is that economic growth and an adequate response to climate change uh, are incompatible with each other. What's your sense of that? Do you, is, is it possible that you can still have a growing economy that, that is capable of staying below two degrees? Uh, I absolutely do. Yes, I, I, I mean, I, I respect um, Kevin's views on this, but I, I don't think there's uh, any hard evidence that economic growth and, and climate mitigation are incompatible. Um, I feel as a matter of policy, I think it's very unhelpful to suggest that there are alternatives, uh, because a lot of countries in the world feel that 
you know, economic growth is their imperative and understandably so because they have a lot of poor people, a lot of mouths to feed. Um, and if people tell them that doing something about climate change is an alternative to economic growth, then many of these countries would entirely reasonable conclude, okay, well, let's concentrate on economic growth first then. Hmm. So no, I don't think there's any incompatibility between a growing economy uh, and addressing the problem of climate change. I think there is a problem, uh, perhaps, in some of the measures which, some of the ways in which we try to approach uh, the climate change issue. Uh, Richard Toll, for example, pointed out a few years ago that to raise carbon taxes high enough to make sure that we actually stopped dumping carbon into the atmosphere altogether, which is what would be needed in order to stop the process of climate change, um, you might in, end up sort of virtually strangling the world economy, or at least getting to the point where a substantial percentage of the world's population was paying their entire income in carbon taxes. So, it, so you wrote a recent piece uh, in the Daily Mail in which you argued that the only route forward to tackling climate change was carbon capture and storage, but it's still an experimental technology. Uh, is there a, a danger with putting all our eggs in one basket in terms of response, do you think? I wasn't, every, I mean, if you, if you um, sort of read the, the, back, the paper on which that article was based, um, we, we ha in a sense, we've only got one basket to put the eggs in. If you think about the problem from the perspective of um, the overall carbon in the ground. So we've got, as I said uh, a, a few minutes ago, um, we started off with three and a half trillion tons of fossil carbon in the ground. We burned half a trillion tons. We've got three trillion to go, more or less. And uh, we're, you know, cracking on through the remainder. If we want to limit warming to two degrees, we'd have to limit overall carbon emissions into the atmosphere to less than a trillion tons, possibly one and a half trillion, but not more than that. That still leaves a couple of trillion tons of fossil carbon in the ground available to be converted into useful energy. So that just really leaves us with three options. Either we burn that carbon, dump the CO2 in the atmosphere and suffer the consequences in terms of climate change, or we introduce a global climate mitigation regime that's so stringent, so draconian, that no one anywhere in the world ever is allowed to dig up that fossil carbon and burn it. And the third option, so that, that second option is one which I actually would regard as pretty frightening in itself. I mean, I, th I find it very hard to believe that we would be able to set up some kind of global carbon governance regime that, that, that is that strict. Mm -hmm. And if we can't do that, then we just have to accept that some of that carbon, which cannot be dumped, the atmosphere is going to go. Essentially, we're talking about building an industry from scratch, in fact, today, comparable in scale to the uh, fossil fuel industry itself. Um, so we need to, you know, th that, we, and we need to do that over the next two or three decades, which is why we need to be getting on with it. Um, without it, we will not solve the problem of climate change because we will continue to use these fossil energy sources. We might use them slower if we, you know, are successful in improving our energy efficiency and so forth. But the key point and the key sort of new finding, if you like, in the latest IPCC assessment is that it really doesn't make any difference 
using carbon slower if you still burn it all in the end. Um, in the end, it's the total amount of carbon you dump into the atmosphere which matters, uh, not the rate you emit in any particular year. But you've been involved in publishing papers on climate change since 1999 and know as much about this as, as, as many, most people, I'm sure. How do, you, how do you live with it in your daily life? How, 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 does, how does knowing what you know about climate change impact on, on how you live and, uh, and how you live with that information? Uh, well, one thing's for sure is that the vast bulk of my carbon footprint is spent going to IPCC meetings, <laughs> which is, you know, uh, ironic, um, but also um, uh, highlights the difficulty of relying on, you know, personal behavior to address the problem. I mean, until the problem's addressed at source, until we essentially engage the fossil fuel industry in solving its own waste disposal problem rather than sort of asking individuals to tighten their belts and reduce their carbon budgets, we're not really going to make a serious dent on it. So, um, you know, while I, I think there's a, obviously a, a, an excellent place for people um, diversifying their energy supplies and reducing their energy consumption, there's an excellent economic case for doing that, an excellent economic, uh, energy security case and so forth, um, but we also need to be realistic, we need to recognize that we're not going to solve the problem of climate change until we solve it at source, until the, until the fossil fuel industry essentially is, is required to take uh, responsibility for the waste products of the products it, use, it sells. And, and in terms of the rest of us, in, uh, uh, what will characterise living with climate change in the UK, UK over the next 20 years, do you think? Well, we, we, the, the, the consensus prediction is reasonably clear that we should be expecting to see a, a higher frequency of, of uh, warmer summers and possibly wetter, warmer winters. Um, but uh, there's obviously a lot of variability around that. And we're still a long way from seeing, as I said at the beginning, weather events that simply wouldn't have happened without climate change. So in the UK, at least, because there's a lot of weather variability in this part of the world, I think detecting the effects of climate change on the UK will take a while. It'll, it'll, it's going to, in, in, some, in some respects, it's the, one of the hardest parts of the world to see the impacts of climate change coming through. I think it'll be much more obvious. I think it already is more obvious, the impact of climate change on places with less year-to-year -year variabilities such as Africa and uh, Australia, for example.